there's a middle ground between kind of a strict textualist approach and a grand structural approach um, that I think is really the only realistic approach to, to a functioning constitution and to a coherent jurisprudence around that constitution. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast is University of Waterloo political science professor Emmett McFarlane. Professor McFarlane is a prolific author whose research focuses on constitutional law and the role of courts in constitutional interpretation. On today's show, we're discussing his recent book, Constitutional Pariah, which considers the legacy of the Supreme Court of Canada's reasons in the reference re-Senate reform. Professor McFarlane, welcome to Runnymede Radio. Thank you for having me. Before we dive in and discuss the substance of the book, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit first about the actual writing process and how this project came to fruition. A number of our listeners are writers or aspiring authors, and I think they would be interested to hear in how something like this comes about, because this isn't just a single article or a case comment on a Supreme Court case, which might be what people normally write, but it's an entire monograph, and it's actually part of a bigger series published by UBC Press on leading Canadian legal cases. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of walk through how you got to this point of wanting to write a whole book on the Senate reference. Absolutely. My initial foray into this case was in the form of a paper, and that was kind of an initial critical appraisal of the the court's decision in the McGill Law Journal back in 2015. Um, But it sparked an interest in two other things. One is a serious interest in constitutional amendments uh, on my part. And I subsequently published an edited volume on constitutional amendment uh, not long after that, Um, as well as with respect to the changes that ultimately ended up happening in the Senate itself as a result of the informal changes to the Senate appointments process. And so it quickly evolved such that once UBC Press announced its landmark cases series, um, it became an obvious kind of endeavor on my part. I had I had been writing about constitutional change and amendment over the course of a few years and um, suddenly found myself also writing about the Senate, which is something that uh, neither I nor a lot of people maybe were historically interested in. But then the reforms that have happened to the Senate have created Um, quite a bit of change within Parliament and arguably the most important reform to Parliament in its history. Um, And so the book itself is certainly centered around the reference, but it's ultimately a study of both the Senate and Senate reform and of constitutional change. Um, And, um, you know, once I started writing it, it it kind of came together very quickly, but only as a result of all of those previous years of thinking. That was going to be my next question, because I'm I'm currently in the process now with a colleague of uh, in the initial stages of planning for a case comment on the Supreme Court's recent ruling in City of Toronto, which I want to talk a little bit about later. And even now, as I think about writing a case comment, it's a little bit daunting, but to write an entire book is uh, is quite the feat. So but it but it sounds like, again, with as with a lot of these things, when you spend years thinking about these issues, uh, once you actually start to put pen to paper, so to speak, it comes pretty easily. It does. And so it's partly, yeah, partly a product of kind of years of thinking and other writings on on those areas. And partly, you know, UBC Press was good 
an encouraging, you know, very accessible kind of style. They wanted they wanted relatively slim volumes for this particular collection. Um, so it became a very good home. And I, I, you know, to the extent that we're talking a little bit about, uh, you know, encouraging other writers or potential writers to delve into these sorts of activities, finding a publisher who ha- kind of shares the similar goals uh, mm-hmm. and what they're looking for is a, a big part of that process. There, there seems to be a bit of a stigma sometimes around, um, as, as you put it, slimmer volumes. But, you know, a friend of mine was commenting recently that in some cases, shorter books can actually be better, better to um, have something more concise to say than to, you know, try to extend it into uh, something longer than it needs to be. Yeah. And, you know, academics have problems with concision uh, in the best <laughs> of times. And, you know, as someone who contributes regularly to law journal articles, particularly They have quite a different culture around word limits um, and are quite more generous in how how long they can be. But, you know, the the virtue here is, you know, I really was thinking about students when I was writing this book. Mm. Um, I I, I do think there are things in it that other scholars and researchers, I think, hopefully will will glob onto. But it's it really is, I hope, a readable book and a kind of a quick read that gives students a background, not just in parliament and and the constitution, but a a narrative, a story about this particular case as well. And I think that's something that will resonate with our our listeners being uh, an organization that works a lot with law students. It's something that's on my mind a lot when I'm preparing to write something is, you know, my goal isn't just to get it to the point where it's going to be cited by the Supreme Court, although that would be wonderful if that is in what happened at the end of the day. But to think first and foremost about giving something to students that they'll be able to take and benefit from. Absolutely. And then, you know, the the the, you know, really the home run is kind of hitting both of those notes. And um, I've been fortunate enough to have been cited by the Supreme Court, and it ended up not being the paper that I ever thought would be the one to get cited. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, that's that's just how things uh, tend to work out, isn't it? So, so let's transition then and, and talk about the actual case itself, the reference re-Senate reform. And for those who aren't familiar with the case, can you start by just giving our listeners a high-level overview of what the court was asked to address? So obviously the Harper government was, was exploring the extent to which it could reform the Senate without amending the Constitution, but was the reference about more than just these kind of you know superficial questions? I do think that the Harper government had a very good faith and honest desire to reform the Senate. And this goes back to kind of the pre-merger days of the Conservative Party and really the Reform Party roots in a desire for a triple E Senate. And so one of the reasons that the ultimate proposals put forward at the court did not resemble the triple E was the obstacle of the the amending formula. Absolutely. The the Harper government was not one that was interested in even normal intergovernmental kind of negotiations over policy, let alone the the kind of mega constitutional politics um, that are involved with formal amendment of the constitution. And so they settled on these two kind of ideas, one being term limits for senators and one being consultative elections for senators, where the prime minister would retain the ultimate formal authority over the appointment process as consistent with the constitution, um, but where the electoral outcomes would be really the the venue by which um, candidate names would come forward. Um, And so the the case 
fundamentally came about because there were questions raised about even the constitutionality of these these um, more you know minor kind of amendments to to the Senate and to its processes. The the question really became at what point do provinces need to be formally consulted mm -hmm. for certain changes to the Senate? And with respect to term limits and the consultative elections process, ultimately the court ruled that these um, these required provincial approval under the general amending procedure. Um, but it wasn't clear um, by any stretch when the Harper government first started bringing legislation, bringing bills in to affect these changes in as early as 2006, 2007. Um, and so, it, you know, part of the narrative in the book is really describing that background context, the politics and, and contestation over the reforms. And even even there's even a stretch of the book that kind of puzzles over why it took so long to get to the Supreme Court. Hmm. And I, I'm not sure it would have if not for the for Quebec submitting its own reference to its appellate court first. So so in some ways, the federal government's hand was forced. I think so. I think ultimately, on one side, you know, the cynical part of me thinks the conservative government was happy to have this issue that it can continually promise in its in its campaign platforms. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there was a, a real interest in getting to the bottom of the constitutional question. I think they would have been happy to um, reform the Senate and proceed with reform. I think, again, I think I take um, them at, at good faith that they believed these, these were things that Parliament could affect unilaterally. And in fact, on term limits, I still believe they were they were right um but uh, ultimately they this legislation wasn't going to to pass or if it did pass it was going to be litigated anyway mm -hmm. and they they probably had had little choice but to ultimately refer the questions kind of on that point um other scholars uh charisma mathen has written about um uh, courts without cases, or I think that's the name of her her book. But basically, this idea of of references and the kind of the the pseudo precedent that they set. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that process and whether it's better to litigate these sort of questions within a specific uh, factual context, or is it better to present them to the court as a reference? Yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm kind of split on this because uh, Mathen makes the very astute and accurate point that references are ultimately treated every bit as authoritatively as regular cases um, by by the courts and by political actors. Political actors adhere to reference decisions in the same way they adhere to normal uh, constitutional decisions by the court. Uh, at the same time, reference questions tend to take uh, the concrete of of a particular circumstance a little bit out of the equation at least with respect to the senate reform reference there had been bills introduced and in fact the the questions in this case were actually derived directly from a piece of legislation mm -hmm. um, and then other questions tacked in about like abolition particularly um, but what what the reference context often risks doing is inviting the court into a a broader, more ambiguous and theoretical space. And I think that's one of the reasons why with a lot of constitutional references, we see the court at its most creative, its mm. most uh, adventurous with respect to its reasoning. I don't think it's a huge mistake that um, unwritten constitutional principles 
have played a bigger role in references overall than they have in regular cases for that reason. And so um, they can be helpful in that they help avoid extensive and lengthy and expensive litigation um, in some cases, but they can be, I think, problematic from a jurisprudential perspective because we end up sometimes with um, questionable outcomes, um, but not just outcomes, but primarily questionable reasoning and, and indeed problematic reasoning um, that that comes out of an attempt by the court uh, to, to come up with a, a, a conclusion to a deeply political problem and try to satisfy all parties at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something we've seen, you know, most predominantly with the patriation and secession references. Right. Um, and I'm not sure those cases play out if they were um, play out the same way if they were part of regular litigation processes. And, and here we are over 20 years later, and we're still debating uh, the the weight of those references, the, the succession reference and the provincial judges reference and uh, and the wisdom of those references. And uh, and certainly I think, you know, we're going to little bit later on get into kind of the unwritten principles uh, issue because it's a fascinating one and it's one that uh, seems to have re-emerged in recent years, not just in the scholarship, but also in uh, some of these cases coming out of the Supreme Court. But before we dive into the court's reasoning, I just want to quickly uh, address the outcome. And, and you indicated a moment ago that you uh, disagreed with at least part of the outcome of the, the reference as it pertained to uh, senator term limits. Can you comment on the other, um, the rest of the outcome of the reference and what the court said? And, and do you agree or disagree with, with how they decided this reference? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the easiest question before the court in this reference was what amending procedures required for abolishing the Senate outright. I think it's quite clear on a plain reading of the text that abolishing the Senate at the very least requires changes to the amending formula itself. And we know that changes to the amending formula are one of the items that require unanimity and unanimous provincial consent. Um, the court the court dealt with that in fairly short order, and it did it did it accurately, in my view. On consultative elections, it's a little bit trickier, and it's trickier um, because I, I think it's fair game to see formalized election processes, um, elections that are legislated, such that they are mm. binding on future governments, unless those governments had Parliament repeal uh, the legislative scheme. As, as becoming part of the method of selecting senators, right? As that mm-hmm. the court, I think, made a fair argument that the method of selection isn't just the final decision-making uh, part of the process, not just the, uh, not just the rubber stamp by the prime minister, that if you're going to legalize a process like consultative elections, they become part of the, part of the method of selection. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get into the reasoning because uh, I have bigger problems with the reasoning than I do with that particular outcome. On term limits, um, my my issue with the court's decision and my disagreement really rests on the nature of, of term limits as a change, not only because term limits aren't mentioned in the amending formula in the way method of selecting senators is, um, but also in, in how we attribute the provincial interest in that change. Um, and my biggest concern, and this is explained at length in the book, is that Parliament constitutionally 
brought in a mandatory retirement age. Um, but lengthy non-renewable terms for senators would be somehow different and would somehow implicate provincial interest in a way that <laughs> mandatory retirement does not. And I'm not sure I can see the, the distinction there at the end of the day. Okay, so let's let's focus then on the reasoning, because in the book, you are critical of the court's reasoning on, on several points. And specifically, you suggest that the Senate reference might have the effect of making the Canadian Constitution so difficult to amend that it, it, it essentially becomes frozen and it's unable to move and to evolve with the country. So can you expand on this critique a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, I really think a big part of the problem in the, the reference is its reliance on this constitutional architecture concept, because ultimately the court didn't just rest its conclusion that provincial consent is required for consultative elections on the basis of introducing such elections through a legislative process or part of method of selecting. What the court said is these reforms will actually change the nature of the Senate itself in a way mm -hmm. that is not connected to the core roles of the, the institution. And so what this requires is that the court, um, to get a sense of what is part of the constitutional architecture, has to be able to accurately define and identify the proper roles of, of the upper house and its relationship to uh, the, the lower house in parliament um, and, and the, the various animating features and processes of the constitution are ultimately up to the discretionary framing of the court itself. Instead of, so instead of resting on defining really the parameters of the different procedures under the amending formula, we get this foray into the Senate is a complementary, not a competitive body. Mm -hmm. And that's all well and good. Um, I think a lot of scholars of the Senate uh, would agree that the sober second thought role requires the, the Senate to some degree to adopt a bit of a deferential posture to the legislative agenda of government, to the elected mandate of the House of Commons. But at the same time, the Constitution endows the Senate with almost identical powers as the House. And we have had numerous points in our history where the Senate has indeed acted as a competitive rather than a complementary body. And so resting a decision that provinces have an interest in consultative elections and term limits for senators on the basis that either of those things would actually alter the role the Senate plays mm -hmm. is not quite as clear cut as the Supreme Court's logic kind of suggests. Um, and so I'm a little concerned about the, the ambiguity that introduces. And so the outcomes, maybe the outcomes are ultimately neither here nor there. I think I agree with the, the court on the actual conclusion with respect to consultative elections. But I'm not sure, and no, nor is anyone else sure, what the constitutional architecture actually is. There is now a growing sub-literature questioning whether or not constitutional conventions are part of the constitutional architecture, such that changes to conventions might mean changes to the Constitution and therefore implicate somehow the amending formula. Um, it's not clear, again, the relationship between conventions and these unwritten principles, or even mm -hmm. where the unwritten principles come into effect. Um, the City of Toronto case that you mentioned earlier um, I'm not sure what to make of 
what the majority in city of Toronto would have to say about the constitutional architecture, um, uh, given its conclusions about unwritten principles. Um, so there are a lot, there's a lot of unpacking to do. And it seems to be premised on this assumption that the unwritten components of Canada's constitution are akin to written constitutional law, and that all the various components are this coherent structure. But that doesn't actually, in my view, reflect the way our constitutional evolution has actually occurred. And in fact, things like conventions are there to actually gloss over contradictions between mm. how the constitution is formally written with how it operates in practice. And, and effectively constitutionalizing those things could actually be very problematic, not just for constitutional stasis um, and an ability to, to reform the constitution, um, but for uh, what I have called in other, in other work, uh, judicial amendment of the constitution. The, the judges mm -hmm. are adopting a posture whereby any major constitutional reform is ultimately going to go through the courts instead of the 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 actors that the constitution designates for constitutional amendment and that is the legislatures of of confederation um so i i mean that's the very high level <laughs> uh mm -hmm. overview of my various concerns with this concept and how the court employed its reasoning in, in the case so on that point, let's talk a little bit more and dive down a little bit deeper into this idea of constitutional architecture. Uh, you've given us a pretty you know, robust critique of the idea already, but you've referenced that there's a growing subliterature on this. And so one of the scholars who's addressed this is Leonid Serrata, who will be no stranger to listeners of this podcast. And he's argued, as you've alluded to, that the court's reliance on constitutional architecture in the Senate reference could effectively constitutionalize certain conventions and unwritten principles insofar as the framers drafted, uh, and this is the quote, constitutional provisions in a way that only makes sense if the continued existence of certain rules is presumed, end quote, and which must be carried into effect by courts as well as political actors. So you've given a little bit of a response to this, but I'm wondering if you want to respond a little bit more directly uh, to the argument that Professor Serrata is making here. Sure, yeah. And I actually have a forthcoming paper in the Canadian Journal of Political Science uh, that is effectively a direct response to, to Leonid's uh, own writings on this topic. Uh, Krista Schultz, Kate Glover-Berger, uh, Michael Powell, all and myself, we've all raised the question of like, what are, what are the implications of the constitutional architecture concept for the place of conventions? And do, you know, is the, is the effect of the logic of the architecture concept that the court employs, is that to constitutionalize or legalize conventions? Uh, Leonid seems um, uh, encouraged by this. In fact, he, he seems as if he might welcome uh, the judicialization of conventions. I, I on the other hand, am, am deeply concerned about this prospect. Um, I think the reason we have conventions is actually in part to provide flexibility with respect to the formal constitution um, and to ensure that political practice reflects democratic principles um, it, a straightforward reading of the 1867 Act, for example, would have you believe that the governor general is emperor of Canada and conventions are the reason why that is not the case. Um, if we legalize conventions, 
what we do is subject evolution of political practice to judicial review. Hmm. Um, and, and I think there's a very good re reason for the traditional Dicean divide between law and politics on, on this front. Um, and if, if conventions are indeed frozen in, in, in the sense of that they are now legally entrenched as part of the architecture, then I have in fact understated the degree to which Canada suffers from a constitutional stasis. Um, conventions are really there to allow for the democratic principles of governance to, to, to operate within the formal strictures of the constitution. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they are meant to evolve. Um, I think, and I think we'll see that debate with respect to any number of conventions. And there's an ongoing debate about the tension between the regional convention of appointment to the Supreme Court and some of the other factors that go into court appointments like um, bilingualism, indigeneity, mm -hmm. and the and the and the and the like, and that we might actually see movement with respect to to certain conventions in this regard. Well, um, Professor Philip Legasse made this argument fairly recently with regard to the office of the Governor General and the convention that the Governor General needs to be bilingual in the sense of being able to speak French and English. And his suggestion was, now that we have our very first Indigenous Governor General, that perhaps that convention needs to evolve such that the Governor General still needs to be bilingual, but it's no longer a bilingualism between both official languages. It could be one official language and an indigenous language. Yeah, and so I think that's a great example of how, how these things uh, do evolve and how they're meant to evolve. Um, the, you know, the federal government in 2019 uh, arguably breached convention when it did not appoint anyone from Alberta to cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are a lot of political science textbooks say that that regional appointment of convention uh, and, and, and indeed provincial representation in cabinet is a constitutional convention. And so under a formulation of the architecture concept where conventions are now entrenched, that decision could have been subject to judicial review. Um, except there were good, there arguably or at least debatable reasons for that decision in that um Justin Trudeau decided he did not want to appoint anyone from the Senate mm -hmm. and the Liberals did not have any MPs from Alberta. Mm -hmm. um, so what would judicial review of that decision look like? Would, would, would the court be effectively ordering the prime minister to appoint a senator to cabinet or, or indeed to appoint an opposition member to, to cabinet? That would be an absurd judicial intrusion into a, an inherently political decision. Mm -hmm. um, and and so these are the sorts of uh, consequences I think and implications we have to think through uh, when we when we kind of characterize what the constitutional architecture is all about. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of scholarship that needs to be done that starts to explore these relationships. Um, and my my forthcoming paper as as a bit of a response to Professor Sirota is is the beginning of that, but I, I, I think a lot of us will be writing more on, on unwritten principles, on mm -hmm. conventions, on the relationship between those two things, and indeed on other con concepts that don't appear in the constitutional text. The Crown's fiduciary duty to mm -hmm. Indigenous peoples, the duty to consult. These don't necessarily uh, get lumped in with unwritten principles, but they are just as important, and and yet they are, they don't, kind of benefit from explicit uh, text. 
um, as constitutional law in that sense. So like, where do they fall within this architecture? Um, and should we even be pretending that all of the, uh, the, the whole, the whole constitution itself is a coherent singular seabed under which the islands of the written documents uh, fall as, as Mark Walters uh, so eloquently and poetically puts it, or, or should we recognize the political nature of constitutional evolution and be a little more uh, realistic in, in our approach for, for lack of a better word? I, I think you've identified the tensions well, and it, this is kind of, um, especially as it pertains to conventions and unwritten principles, and and at times there are questions that maybe don't fit neatly within either of those boxes. And so, um, do, do you think that is the architecture concept uh, something that we should just then abandon altogether? Do you think there's a version of architecture that makes sense? And you know, I, I say this as someone who's engaged with this issue myself and working on a few. Um, on papers that engage with this issue. And so I'm thinking specifically about challenges that we have coming down the pipe uh, that are going to be going before the Supreme Court regarding things like Section 33 and assumptions about Section 33 that we previously held that this is something that was never going to be used don't seem to be, um, they don't seem to be borne out anymore. And so there's this question of if we had some sort of scenario where a government invoked Section 33 to do something that struck at the very core of parliamentary governance. If uh, if a party, for example, got a majority in, in parliament and decided to dismantle all of its main political rivals and then invoke Section 33 to deal with the Section 2D violation, do we have to rely on architecture at that point to resort to the problem? Or do you think this is just something that as, as horrendous as that would be, courts would have no ability to interfere in. Yeah, I do sometimes wonder how, you know, this, the Senate reform reference appears to be the, the most comprehensive elaboration by the court on the architecture concept, but it wasn't, it, this wasn't the origins of it, right? The court mm -hmm. has referred to the structure of the Constitution in past cases, notably in the secession reference. But if you go back to the patriation reference, um, the word structure appears as well. Um, I think there's plenty of room for structural reasoning in mm. constitutional interpretation. Um, there are obvious gaps that sometimes need to be filled through the interpretive enterprise. Um, you know, I have this forthcoming paper on judicial amendment of the Constitution uh, coming out in ICON, and and uh, Kate Glover Berger is one of the people who wrote a very nice response piece that is appearing in the same issue. But she kind of accuses me of just not liking structural interpretation. Um, I just think I just think constitutional architecture concept, um, and in, in what other countries has come to be known as basic structure doctrine, where courts have actually knocked down constitutional amendments, even though that they've been implemented through the constitutional required hmm. process on the basis that those changes offend the basic structure of those constitutions. I think that's an extreme approach that um, if adopted by the court would, would have serious illegitimacy. Um, mm -hmm. the, the constitution prescribes formal amendment procedures. Canada's are notoriously difficult enough 
and for the court to evaluate amendments on their substantive basis rather than whether or not the, the right procedure was, was followed would be a huge problem. And some, and I do wonder sometimes whether the constitutional architecture is a bit of a gateway to, to basic structure doctrine in Canada, and that would be deeply concerning. But my more realistic assessment is that the court actually just hasn't actually thought this stuff through. I don't think the court thought for one minute about constitutional conventions when it wrote that the uh, architecture includes its unwritten components um, um, or that it includes things not that are just not necessarily directly reflected in the text. I think it's simply the court has... Um, looked at looked at relevant jurisprudence and noted in these past big reference cases that it has referred to this structure and it ran with it mm -hmm. um, as a concept in the Senate reform reference. And um, maybe it needs to pull back a little to avoid unintended consequences. And we could have future cases where the court actually will need to clarify a lot of this stuff. Um, the very interesting thing for constitutional scholars is, of course, that with City of Toronto and the division on the court over the status and, and application of unwritten principles means that um, some of the debates about constitutional architecture itself might end up being very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, they're also very worrying because they invite a degree of judicial creativity that gets us too far away from the text, in, in my view. It, you know, thinking about this, sometimes I think we forget that uh, we, we treat the court as this sort of monolith and and this uh, this entity. But of course, you go back to the Senate ref. Um, sorry, not the Senate reference, but the succession reference and the provincial judges reference, and then you go up to the Senate reference. I'm trying to think off the top of my head how many judges would have been on the bench for both of those references. It might have just been Chief Justice McLaughlin. Um, and so, as you say, uh, was the court really, um, do they, is there always the intentionality that we perhaps imagine that there is um, and that there's this kind of grand plan or is the court sort of just dealing with these issues as they come up? So, so on that point, you raised City of Toronto. Why don't we talk about that for a few minutes uh, before we, we conclude our interview here? And, and in that case, uh, the majority's reasons do seem to rule out an expanded role for unwritten principles when it comes to the invalidation of legislation. But the majority does note that, and this is the quote, unwritten principles can be used to develop structural doctrines unwritten in the written, sorry, unstated in the written constitution per se, but necessary to the coherence of and flowing by implication from its architecture. Structural doctrines can fill gaps and address important questions on which the text of the Constitution is silent, end quote. So do you see this, um, again, bearing in mind here that perhaps there isn't the continuity that we imagine between all of these references and decisions, but do you see this as being consistent and flowing out of what the court said in the Senate reference, or is this a potential corrective and is the court now uh, veering in a different direction? Yeah, I, I do think there's a. I do think it, it should be read as consistent with the Senate reference, but also a warning to not overinterpret the potential implications of the Senate reference, um, because it, you know you can run with the constitutional architecture concept in the way Professor Sirota has, and say, well, it looks like conventions might be implicated here now, um, and I think the majority in City of Toronto would balk at that, um, mm -hmm. given given their approach to unwritten principles. Um, the real, you know, and 
this sort of structural interpretation can be important because the courts need to recognize political practice to avoid absurdities. If they were to take a very strict textual approach to constitutional interpretation, that could result in all sorts of unintended consequences also. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a realism here, but it should be at the level of taking into account how political practice works under our constitution, but not necessarily formally entrenching it as constitutional law. There's a middle ground between kind of a strict textualist approach and a grand structural approach um, that I think is really the only realistic approach to, to a functioning constitution and to a coherent jurisprudence around that constitution. Um, the court can go in another direction. And if it heads towards the bright lights of constitutional architecture um, uh, and all of the, you know, and really leans into it, um, it would be in some sense, I think, a, a big judicial power grab because mm -hmm. it would leave, it would leave even informal constitutional change subject to judicial whim rather than constitutional practice by the other political actors in our system. Um, so it's it's not quite a tightrope, but I would hope that um, the majority's kind of restrained approach to structural interpretation is what wins out the day. And it's interesting to see how this issue has exposed fault lines, um, particularly among uh, jurists and scholars who might identify as originalists. And, and I respect that you yourself uh, probably don't adopt that label for yourself, but you are seeing these camps uh, within originalist circles um, pop up and you've got the more strict textualists. And then you perhaps have people more like Professor Serrata who are a little bit more uh, open to this idea of, of architecture. And a lot of this seems to be coming down to um, really the, the the ongoing debate over legal constitutionalism versus political constitutionalism. And, and um, I'm wondering if you can comment on that a bit, because of course uh, your background is as a political scientist, but as a political scientist who is a constitutional scholar. And so you bring a unique perspective to this that perhaps lawyers who are, you know, by their very craft are used to trying to come up with these very neat and clean answers to get to, preordained outcomes that you don't necessarily um, uh, have that obstacle in your way in terms of your thinking. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that just a little bit. Yeah. And this is so this is where the, the podcast might get very controversial for those uh, listeners trained in, in law and who have gone through law school. Um, you know, there I am not I, I'm not I don't have an antipathy antipathy towards originalism, although I um, I am not an originalist. I think originalism is important for the very reason that people like Leonid Sirota and Ben Oliphant have, have written mm -hmm. about in that the mm -hmm. purposive approach the court endorses to interpretation of the charter, for example, lends itself to at least the ability of judges to cherry pick whether or not they want to be originalist that day or not. And that mm -hmm. if you're going to assess the purpose of particular constitutional provisions, in many contexts, that's actually going to require an understanding of what was intended to be entrenched in the Constitution. Um, and, and Oliphant and Sirota have, in, in a couple of papers, pointed to examples, including the Senate reference, I believe, where originalist thinking kind of seeps into some of the, the logic. And certainly the court 
talking about the role of the Senate and, and what it's, the Senate is meant to be is kind of originalist in posture, if not mm -hmm. in method. Um, and so I, I'm open to that sort of logic. And, and the reason I'm open to that logic is because the amending formula itself tells us that certain things are intended to be in the Constitution and others are not yet there. Um, and, and progressivist kind of living tree interpretation if a radical version of it is adapted, you can have a constitutional interpretation that pretends there is no amending formula, right. uh, that all of our constitutional evolution can just happen through interpretation, Right. Uh, that we, we don't even need to do amendments because living tree interpretation means the courts will get us to where we need to go anyway. And that's that's not particularly health, healthy. That, that's, the it, other, that's the other ditch on the other side of the road that we want to avoid. Yeah. And so I do think, yeah, so I do think that that there are, again, in, in the legal scholarship, there's sometimes a preoccupation with this constitutional theorizing debates over methods of interpretation mm -hmm. that are all ideal types, none of them which reflect the actual political elements of judicial decision making around mm -hmm. the Constitution. Um, and so personally, I find some of those debates can get um, a little low utility in that they they get away from the practical realities at stake and, and the political contexts that cloud most major constitutional decisions. Um, they, are, they are enlightening debates for what they expose about constitutional interpretation in practice, and they're important in that respect. But you'll never, you're not going to get a book from me about theories of constitutional interpretation, um, <laughs> for, for, perhaps for that reason. And I think the risk here, particularly in our context, is that we, uh, when we're talking about constitutional interpretation and, and theories of interpretation is in Canada, the temptation is very much to define ourselves by the terms of the, the debate that are happening south of the border. And so uh, when words like originalism pop up, people get a very specific image in their head and, and not just in terms of the high level, but how that's specifically been applied. And Obviously, you know, to the extent, uh, and I think uh, uh, Professor Serrata and Benjamin Oliphant have done a good job of explaining this, that in the Canadian context, uh, originalism is going to look very different. And that makes sense, obviously, given that a lot of the constitution that we're dealing with, uh, the drafters are still with us. And so the very uh, nature of our constitution is different. And uh, the questions that we have to wrestle with are going to be different as well, uh, not the least of which is because as um, as Professor Ryan Alford talks about in his book that came out last year, Seven Absolute Rights, we have this whole unwritten heritage that somehow informs the Constitution now. And the question that we're dealing with is how exactly that works. Yeah. And really, aside from uh, Oliphant and Sirota's articles on this, the Carrie Frock uh, Professor Kerry Frock at UNB is really the only anecdote in Canada to the idea that originalism is inherently conservative or necessarily kind of a conservative approach to interpretation. Um, so if there are listeners really interested in, in that kind of topic, uh, they should be sure to read her work as well. Well, and our listeners should definitely uh, look ahead to our upcoming national conference that'll be held in January. And we're going to be talking about issues like legal interpretation. And uh, I know uh, 
one of the other players in this debate, um, Asher Honickman, is uh, increasingly of the view that uh, originalism is is a process and is not outcome oriented. And so there's the need to avoid these uh, conservative, progressive labels to it since um, since that's not how it ought to be oriented. Professor, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Before we sign off, uh, do you want to share with our listeners any other projects that you have coming up, any books that have been published or will be published soon that you've been working on? Sure, yeah. So just released this week, the week we're recording this, uh, Dilemmas of Free Expression is an edited volume I put together, and it has a host of uh, legal scholars, political scientists, philosophers writing about all sorts of different contemporary issues relating to free expression, uh, regulation of social media, electoral regulation, uh, hate speech, um, uh, and many more things. Um, I also have a, another forthcoming edited volume on the 40th anniversary of the 1982 uh, Constitution Act, looking at charter rights, reconciliation, and constitutional change that has 26 chapters uh, by many, many eminent scholars. Um, and we're hoping that will be out in sometime during 2022. Um, and then I'm uh, actively working on um, a project with Phil Agassé on the unwritten parts of the Canadian Constitution. So exploring a lot of the questions we were talking about today. Um, but we haven't even started writing that manuscript. That's just what I, I'm, I'm reading and thinking about these days. Well, that latter one is news to me, and I, I very much look forward to that. And, uh, and I'll just put a plug in here for Runnymede for anyone out there who is uh, a grad student or a scholar or a jurist. Um, Runnymede is partnering with LexisNexis to do uh, a special edition of the Supreme Court Law Review, Volume 109, that will focus specifically on the unwritten principle of constitutionalism and the relationship between constitutionalism and the rule of law. And a lot of what we talked about here today about uh, legal constitutionalism and political constitutionalism and more broadly how the debate that's happening in Canada fits within the debate elsewhere. But if uh, anyone wants to pick up copies of those books, uh, where should they be looking? Uh, Constitutional Pariah is published by UBC Press. Dilemmas of Free Expression uh, is the University of Toronto Press. The forthcoming volume on the 40th anniversary of the 82 Act is coming via UBC Press as well, but we are in the middle of changing the title, so I don't have that for you. <laughs> titles, titles can be difficult. Professor, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back on again at some point and see you at some upcoming Running Meet events. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Running Meet Radio is a program of the Running Meet Society a nonpartisan coalition of Canadian law students, lawyers, and scholars committed to constitutionalism, freedom, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more exciting interviews with leading Canadian jurists and scholars. So long for now.